All right, now, it's turned on. You may take your seats. <laughs> so this morning, I'm going to share a poem with you. And uh, I'll just tell you the, the title of it, and then I'll jump off. It's called Unbearable. Now, let me describe to you the most beautiful object in the world to date. You see, we can think about it all day long, but I must cut to the chase and exp explain to you its grace. We see them every day, everywhere, and we see them in every shape and color that we can imagine. There are many of them, however, there is only one of significance. We wear them as a piece on our neck, around our chest, to bring attention to ourselves, to say how holy I may be, or how darling he is to thee. Now they are customized to the presupposed owner, all shiny and given to us to be noosed around our neck, wrapped around our finger, hung on our ears just to let it linger, a tapestry of a tattoo on our body. But you see, all the beautiful colors that come into the ink are not matchless with this. We take it for granted, and it's somewhat like misunderstood to be the symbol of peace, the cross. And yes, just misunderstood to be the symbol of peace, because the symbol of peace was when Jesus rose from Joseph's tomb. You see, it's highly misunderstood, and it's highly controversial. When the guilty were hung on the cross, Right there, there were people that were looking that could not bear the excruciation, even though of the guiltiest. Now, if you really think about it, we turn away. So, the excruciation of the guiltiest. But, it was handcrafted by the experts to make sure that the legs of the guilty work just enough to rise up to take an excruciated breath and lower back down to the original position. Handcrafted by the experts to make sure that it was heavy enough to break the backs of the guilty. Handcrafted by the experts to make sure that death came slowly. Not minutes, seconds, hours, but hours, days, and moments, and seconds. You see, it wasn't polished to the presupposed owners. It was given to the next in line, like blood donors, the cross. Now, while by itself the cross is horrifically excruciating, it's painful, disdainful, what's beautiful about it? is that although the next that was given to was hung there and it was marred, we look to the one who was scarred. You see, he was hung there. Right. And so, it was not polished. It wasn't given to the presupposed, it wasn't customized. But you see, it was given to the next in line like blood donors. 
while by itself it's excruciating, it's horrific, it's painful, disdainful. It is also beautiful. So let me explain to you the most beautiful object in the world to date. You see, when we look at it, when we think about it, it was him that hung on a cross. Yes. So it was him that hung on the cross. For all of us who are lost, the painful, the disdainful, the horrific, the everything unimaginable in the world, you see, he is the one that hung on the cross in opposition absolutely to everything that the crucifix stand for, what it stood for. He died for me, you, he became we, us, and them, and all. You see, he came to redeem humanity from our fall. Now, what makes the cross beautiful is Jesus. He calls to us and he commands us to pick up our cross, to bear our cross, to follow him as we have our cross. And at the end of the day, the most beautiful thing, object in the world to date is the cross. Thank you. Good morning. Whoa, that's hot. Thank you. <clears throat> Let's pray um, after that. Thank you, Will. Father God, thank you for this morning. And thank you for the cross. Thank you for the most beautiful object in the world to date, that the painful, the disdainful, the, the horrific nature of who we are was paid for with the blood of your son on that painful, disdainful, horrific device of torture, God. We thank you for your blood. We know that it's only by the blood of your son that we are washed, that it's only by the blood of your son that we're freed, that we're unbound from this world. And God, I just pray that this morning you would use me. You would use the words you've given me, the thoughts you've given me to to inspire, God, that this would be for someone here. That you would help us make clear the division between the world and between being a follower of Christ, God, that you would lead us into that space and that you would call us into something deeper this morning, deeper and more meaningful. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Before I start this morning, there's two things I want to say. Uh, the first thing is that I just, I, it just brings me to tears. Where'd he go? He's back there. I just love Will Bynum to death. And that guy, man, it's like everybody has their expression of worship. You know, Mitch and Emily are obviously musicians and experts at their craft. They just ooze worship when they get behind those instruments. Will just oozes worship through poetry, and I love being part of it. So I ask him to write every single time I teach because he teaches me something about myself. He teaches me something about the words that I've put on paper. I send him my script, and out of my script, he writes poetry. And it's just beautiful. And so uh, thank you to Will for being faithful in that, just doing that every time. The second thing that I want to say is that whether you realize this happened or not, I, I bet you don't, uh, but you all helped seven of our youth attend a, a, a conference this week called Fusion that was a three-day conference held at ABT where people from youth from all over the state gather together 
they worship together, they learn together, they listen to sermons together, they go to workshops together, and it was uh, really an awesome experience, so thank you so much for your giving. What you give in the offering goes to support the work of our church and the work of the gospel in our youth, which Nicole and I lead, and we're so thankful for that. We're so thankful for the contributions you guys have given that have given them that opportunity, and I promise that you will hear from them about what they learned and about the things that they experienced at Fusion. It was really something cool. We managed to go to, I managed to go to one concert. I went to the Rend Collective concert at the end of the very, uh, the whole conference. And the thing that struck me about this concert is that it was different than like going to other concerts at ABT or anything because it was, it was based off of Fusion. And so you have down front like 500, 1,000, I don't know how many were there. How many? 800 youth all worshiping together with their arms up and jumping and praising Jesus. And it's just really something to see that many young people in one spot doing that. So thank you so much for your faithful giving and for your contribution to that effort. And I know the youth will also thank you. And like I said, we'll hear from them uh, in the future. So this morning, our text is Mark 8, uh, 31 through 9-1. So if you have your Bibles, if you would join me there, you've already heard Greg read it. And if you noticed, uh, let me get mine, actually, now that I think about it here. So if you notice, the translation Greg said, and he began to teach them. It's almost like it starts mid-thought. So what we really have to do is we have to backtrack into the last section that we heard, that we heard Carl teach last week, in order to recap a little bit of what happened in Mark 8, so that we can fully understand what's going to happen as we move forward, because it seems to be one continuous thought. So in Mark 8, 27 through 30, Jesus sets the stage for what is happening today. He had just healed the blind man and a blind man at Bethesda, and as Carl pointed out, by some maybe questionable means, he spit in his eyes, but okay, not going to uh, spin off on that. And so out of that space, he's walking with the disciples, um, and he says, who, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, some people say you're Elijah, and some people say that you're uh, one of the prophets, and some people say that you're John the Baptist. So it was obvious from their responses that they had, that Jesus had been setting himself apart, right? That the crowds could even see it, that they saw that he just wasn't your run-of-the-mill guy, and that there was something different about him, but they couldn't see the absolute truth. They, were, they weren't close enough to it. So then Jesus, after he hears their responses, he turns to him and he says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter, one of Jesus' inner circle, in fact, the rock on which he'll build his church, right? Peter says, he says, you are the Messiah. And Jesus sort of appears in the text to go like, okay, good. He doesn't confirm, he doesn't say, yes, Peter, you're right. But he says, okay, cool, don't tell anybody yet, right? So he kind of confirms it verbally, at least. So as we get ready to dive into our text for today, into Mark 8, 31, what we have to realize is that Jesus just had a discussion with the disciples where he finally, after all the miracles and being sort of like, you know, covert about things, he comes out and he says, okay, I'm the Messiah. So what has to happen now, what the second part of this thought is, is he has to explain to them two things. Now that he, they know that he is in fact the Messiah, he, he, they have to understand what that's going to mean for him in the long term. Essentially, what is Jesus' battle plans, right? Like he's been talking about this victory. Well, what is this victory that he's talking about? So what is the plan for him? It's time they be brought in on that. And then once they understand the plan for him, then what they're really also going to have to understand is how that's going to impact them as followers of Christ, as disciples of Christ. What are they going to experience as a result of actually following Jesus? 
So first, let's look at what Jesus describes as the plan for himself. In Mark 8, 31, one verse after he reveals that he is indeed the Son of Man, Jesus says that the Son of Man, a.k.a. myself, must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests, teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. So basically, he says, in short, that his whole big plan to be the Messiah, to be the Savior, to be the Son of Man is to die in order that he might rise. To suffer, be rejected, and die in order that he might rise. And that's a big deal because in reality, he's, he's telling the disciples that he has plans to defeat death, right? That he has plans to defy all the, world, all the rules of the natural world again and that the death isn't going to be able to hold him down. And then in reality... In order for him to show the, that, that this body and this world and death doesn't have power over him, that he's superior to all of those things, he's going to have to suffer in this body, be rejected by this world, and eventually die in order that he can rise, right? In order that he could actually illustrate his power and his victory over everything, he'll go through it all and then come out victorious on the other side. And it's beautiful because it's actually, it's the fundamental essence of the gospel, Right? But we can stand here and we can say that because we know how the story ends. But for the disciples, for Peter, who's standing here and for generations have watched sort of their people be enslaved and conquered over and over and over by kings, by the worldly definition, it had to be sort of anticlimactic for them. It had to be like, um, okay. Because we can stand here, and when we look at it, we, see, we hear suffering, rejection, and death in order that I might rise, and we know that he, he rose. And so we're like, we focus on the that I might rise part. But I would imagine to the disciples, the suffering, rejection, and death that I might rise, they focused on the suffering, rejection, and death part. So I think that it's in this space that Peter sort of pulls Jesus to the side, and he says, hey, uh, Jesus, can I get just one word real, real quick? And he takes Jesus to the side, and he starts to rebuke him is what it says. And I would imagine that this rebuke, it doesn't tell us what he said, but I would imagine it was sort of Peter telling Jesus his own plans. His own plans for how this was going to work. That he's like, okay, Jesus, you know, you know, number one, you know that I love you, okay, but this is a bad plan. <laughs> that this is like, this is, this is not going to be super effective. Because if you run around telling people that the way you're going to be victorious is by dying, you're not going to get a lot of recruits. You're not going to get a lot of people jumping on board. So then Jesus takes Peter, and remember, they've stepped aside. They're like over here, and they're kind of doing their own thing. I would imagine the disciples are like, that's weird. I wonder what Peter's doing over there. And Jesus then turns Peter around and addresses Peter to the disciples. And he says, get behind me, Satan. And then the disciples are like, yeah, I'm actually glad I'm over here. Yeah. And so, so he says, get behind me, Satan. You, you aren't thinking of the things of the world. You aren't thinking of the things of God. You're only thinking of human concerns. He's telling him that Peter... Your perspective is too small. It's limited to this world. It's limited to the way you see things going here. And so the rebuke is actually him saying, think bigger. I'm telling you victory, and you're thinking this little bitty victory down here, but think bigger. It's going to be way bigger than you can possibly imagine. You're thinking too much about the world, and as a result, you're missing the kingdom. So then I think as he's turned Peter around, as he's shown Peter back to the disciples, as he's addressed this, he brings everybody in. He brings the crowd in. He brings the rest of the disciples in. And he starts to tell them the second piece of the story, right? Which is, 
what is it going to really mean to follow me? What, what are you going to experience here on earth in order to be considered a follower of me? What he tells them for all intents and purposes is that they're going to experience a lot of the same stuff he's going to experience. That they're sort of on the same path he's on. That he, they're following him, literally, right? So he tells them they'll experience four things. Yes, he does say they will experience life, which is where we like to focus. We know the end of the story. They will experience real and lasting and eternal life. But first, they're going to experience suffering, rejection by the world, and death, which is unsettling. And uh, I just Bible study on Wednesday mornings I, I meet with, and most recently we were sort of studying each other's sermons, which is kind of funny, but, uh, but super helpful. And one of my good friends posed it this way. He posed this question. He said, I guess what following Christ, what you had, the question you have to ask yourself is, when I follow Jesus, I get fill in the blank. What do I get when I follow Jesus? And we like to jump to the end. We like to say, I get life. I get meaningful, real, true, everlasting, eternal life. I get forgiveness. I get mercy. I get grace. We like to focus on all those things because they are, in fact, the promise of the gospel, right? We're quick quick to jump to that, but the reality is that all of those things come with an associated cost. That life for Christ, it came with an associated cost. The life that we're promised in Christ comes with an associated cost here on this earth. That we're going to have to, in order to follow Christ, we're going to experience some things that aren't going to be quite as pleasant. It's not always going to be stuff that we're going to be excited and to jump into. It's when we come to the sobering reality that when I follow Jesus, I get suffering, rejection, and death in order that I might experience real life. So if we jump straight to the life, we miss a a fairly significant portion now, living here in this body on this earth. So when I see this, when I read this, when I started thinking about this idea, I'm going to be honest with you, and I sort of went Peter on it, and I was like, that's a terrible plan. Because it's uncomfortable, because up here I can have an eternal perspective, right? And I can say, up here I can say, yeah, yeah, I'm going to suffer. But out here, right, I have the perspective of this world. I have the perspective of things that I can see and feel and touch, things that are real, that are tangible to me now, that can easily overcome the intangible. As a matter of fact, it's really hard to trade that tangible for the intangible, and I think that it's out of that space that the world will sort of tell you about salvation, and that the world will tell you about success and about achievement and what it is that you should gain, because the world can convince you that all the things that you can touch, see, and feel are important, right? But the question is, will we trade the tangible for the intangible? So I sort of think of it like this. If we look at what the world would tell us about salvation or about success or about life, it's sort of this slow flip fade from black to white, right? Where luckily, as Christians, all we have to do is assign the salvation line, right? It's a fade from black to white where black is following the ways of the world and white is the following the ways of Christ. And as long as we can put the line in there and define for ourselves how much I can follow the world and how much I have to follow Christ in order to obtain salvation. So we say, well, I can follow an addiction 49%, but I can follow Christ 51% and therefore I'm saved. 
Or we say, I can follow money and I can follow the way the world says I should manage my money 51% or 49%, and as long as I follow Christ 51%, then I'm saved. We say we can follow the world and also follow Christ. And as long as we're 50%, then salvation. Check. Because that's easy. But what Christ does is he paints a different picture. Christ says that it's either black or it's white. The words that he uses to describe his fate and the eventual fate of his disciples, they're not words of mediocrity, right? They're not words of common ground between the world. He clearly lays out that following him means not following the world. And so when I say, whoa, whoa, Jesus, just one word, come over here for a second so I can tell you what a bad plan that is, he says, Ryan, get behind me, Satan. Because you're not concerned with my ways and the ways of God. You're only concerned with yourself and with the ways of the world. And I've got news for you, Ryan, as we've been learning in this entire Servant King series, it's not about us. So if this is the truth, if the options are really black and white, then we have to briefly examine what it looks like, what the Word would tell us about suffering, rejection, and death, in order that we can actually understand the life that we're promised. So, We'll start where Jesus starts. That's with suffering. He says that the Son of Man, that he would suffer many things. Left it a little vague. And he never specifically says the word suffering as it pertains to the disciples, right? He doesn't say, oh, you're going to suffer when we read it. But the reality is that as I began to look at this, I saw that he said something much, much worse to them. And we glance over it because we use this phrase in Christianese, right, that we all speak all throughout the week. But the reality is that it had super deep implications to the disciples. And he told them that if they really wanted to be his disciple, if they really wanted to follow him, then they were going to have to take up their cross and follow him. Now, like Will pointed out, the cross today has become the most clearly recognized symbol of the Christian church. It's become a symbol. Right? It's something that we wear around our necks, and we wear jewelry of it. We get it tattooed on our bodies. We get, you know, it's, it's up on churches, and it's everywhere. You see it. I, I challenge you. Look at how many times you see a cross just in, like, on Monday. How many times you see it, and how many different spots you see it. So, yeah, it's a symbol. It's a piece of art in all reality. A lot of times it's a piece of art, but the reality is that before it was a piece of art, it was a brutal device of torture and death. And what I think is kind of ironic here is that Jesus tells the disciples they're going to have to take up their cross and follow him before he says that he's going to take up a cross himself, right? He points out the fact that he's going to suffer, be rejected, and die, but he doesn't ever say that he's going to hang on a cross for it yet. But he tells the disciples that they're going to have to pick up their cross, and so I'm sure that to them, they weren't like, well, Brenda, I've got to take up my cross today. And They were like, oh, no. Because no one wanted this for themselves. No one woke up in the morning and casually used that phrase then, right? So, and, and I would find it extremely unlikely that any of the disciples were wearing a cross necklace at the time. I was telling Will this the other day when we were talking about the message, and I said, you know, I think that back then the reality of the cross was probably that it was one of those things where, like, I have a four-year-old, and I think that it was one of those things that the four-year-old would say in public. He'd be like, Dad, what's that? And you'd be like, shh, 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 shh. We'll talk about it when we get home, right? Because it wasn't pretty. It wasn't real. It wasn't beautiful. It was a public spectacle as to why you did not mess with the Roman Empire. 
There were actually times where they would conquer in the Roman Empire, would conquer in battle, and they would line the roads with lines of people hanging on crosses as a public spectacle to say, this is why you don't step out of line. So today in Anchorage, we don't really have the threat looming over our head of constantly of being crucified in town square, right? So it's easy for us to wear our cross around our neck. It's easy for us to say we're going to have to pick up our cross and follow. But then in reality, we choose comfort over suffering every single day. We choose ourselves over the gospel every single day. And I got to thinking about why, and I think it's because the propensity for self-preservation for me to protect myself, is so deeply buried in the human nature because it's what the world tells us constantly. It tells us to find the path of least resistance, the easiest path possible, that things should be comfortable here, right? And so we avoid suffering even in little ways. And I have this example, and it was something that stuck into my head when I started thinking about this, about ways that I've skirted suffering in the past. And I remember telling Greg about this because it really, like, grieved me. And that's that one day, uh, maybe a year ago, I was walking out of Blockbuster, Blockbuster Video on Debar, right? Probably rented The Passion because I'm super holy. (laughs) Or Left Behind series. So, So I was walking out of Blockbuster and I was excited to get home and watch this video with my wife, right? I was excited to take some time with my family and I walked out of Blockbuster and I looked up, it's raining, and there's a guy standing at the bus stop with a whole bunch of grocery bags because cars is right there. And so I heard God, I heard the voice of God, I felt the Spirit, I discerned it in my soul that the Spirit said, go and ask that man if he needs a ride. It seems simple, right? But so I got in my car, because it was raining, I got in my car and I sat there with my keys in my hand, you know how you do when you're like, oh God, are you sure? And I was arguing with him in my mind because my argument was that I might suffer, right? I might lose 15 minutes with my family. Uh, What if he needed to go somewhere that was out of my way? What then, God? You know? And like, I had this, this thought that I might suffer or that what if he was dangerous, right? So I started, I started my car. It was like, like I said, you're sitting there with your key like God is saying, he, God's saying, he's like, don't you do it. You know? And I was like, I'm doing it. So I started my car and I back up and as only God can do, he lines up my rearview mirror perfectly. You know? <laughs> So as I look up, I see him in the rearview mirror, and again, I had this struggle. I have this battle in my mind, and I, what I ended up doing was I drove away. I chose comfort over suffering, right? It's minute suffering. It's not blood, sweat, pain, and suffocation, right? But I let the world creep in and tell me that this might be inconvenient, or this might be uncomfortable, that I might suffer some first world problems. So as we look at this, as we look at the honest truth with the disciples, what we see is that Peter, Andrew, Bartholomew, Philip, Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot were all actually crucified. Peter was actually crucified upside down because he refused to be crucified in the same manner as Christ. Andrew was crucified by being tied to the cross rather than nailed to the cross, and it took him days to die. Days. So some of them were actually crucified in a more brutal manner than Christ himself. James, son of Zebedee, was beheaded. Thomas was run through with a spear. Matthew was stabbed to death. James, son of Alphaeus, was beaten and clubbed to death. So they all did eventually actually have to choose suffering in a very real way. 
So the next time you see the cross, and what I've been asking myself this question when I've been seeing crosses, like I said, you see them everywhere. The question is, am I willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel? That's what we have to ask ourselves, right? Will I suffer for the sake of the gospel? And what does that look like today? Well, in some regions of the world, it actually looks like serious suffering, right? It still looks like persecution. We've heard Christian Chugach uh, come from Saudi Arabia and talk to us about what it looks like to follow Christ in Saudi Arabia, what some of the repercussions are to doing that. We know what ISIS is doing in the Middle East right now to Christians, right? So in some places in the world, it really looks like that. But what does it look like in Anchorage 2016? I've been asking myself this question, and I guess the answer is that it probably looks a little bit different for everybody. But what I do know is that choosing to follow Christ means not choosing ourselves. Is that it means not choosing a state of comfort, and it means not choosing what the world would tell you about sort of the path of least resistance. It's going to be uncomfortable sometimes. And although it's an unpleasant part of the process, the, the truth is that it is part of the process. Uh, one, a book I read recently, the author put it this way. He was talking about great men that are, have shaped the course of history. Um, and he said, this is one of the truths of life, that great men must suffer greatly in order to be great. The suffering that we experience here on earth, it's doing something inside of us, Right? It's preparing us for something. It's conditioning us to long for a life that cannot be experienced here on this earth. Romans 5, 3 through 5 tells us that it's producing endurance, character, and hope. It's preparing our minds for a greater and truer life that does not and cannot exist here on this earth in this body. Because this world and this body that I live in is really just a mist in the scheme of eternity when you think about it. And so what lies ahead after the suffering here will be so much worth the suffering, it's ridiculous. 1 Peter 5.10 says, And after you have suffered a little while, a little short time, a little mist, the God of all grace who has called you to eternal glory in Christ will himself, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That God himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you that what the world might break down in this little mist of time you spend here, God himself will someday build back up again. So then if that's the case, if the Father, if the God of all creation is going to personally build me back up, then the question is, am I willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel? The next thing that's promised to us when we live a life of actually following Christ is that of rejection. Christ said that he would be rejected by the elders, by the teachers, by the chief priests. He didn't add this here, but let's not forget the massive crowd of people chanting crucify him at his sentencing. It's not exactly a vibe of acceptance either. And as I was studying this, I thought that this, this rejection of Christ um, is actually kind of ironic because he is God with us. And then John 1, uh, John 1, 10 and 11 really spells out the ironic nature of this. He says, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. He came to a world that was literally his, that he created yet he was rejected as foreign. It's sort of like the founder of a company 
being voted out by the board of, of trustees because they don't like his ideas, which is craziness because without his ideas, you wouldn't even have a board of trustees, right? But we know how the story ends, so we know that the stone the builders rejected becomes the cornerstone and is the cornerstone. So then the question that I found myself asking is, well, if that's the case, then why do I have to experience rejection? So why not ask Jesus? In John 15, 18, he says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, you would love it, as, it would love you as its own. And as it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. So that's why the world hates you. He's saying if the world hates you, good, because let's not forget what it thought of him. So if he asked you to follow him and the world hated him, then odds are that the world will hate you too. But the rejection that you experience in that is actually good. The rejection is evidence that you are foreign, that you aren't of this world. And the reason that you aren't of this world is because you are of his. You are of him. He has chosen you out of the world. So you can't follow him and follow the world. It's oil and water. It's black and white. It's not a slow fade. Your rejection, your, your being in Christ, your clothing yourself with Christ, your choosing to follow Christ will make the world uncomfortable and it will reject you. Sorry if that's new. That is truth. I think of it like this. Uh, think if my kidneys were to fail tomorrow, right, and Greg was to come to me and he was like, man, Ryan, I really love you, and, and you teach like once every six weeks. That really helps me out. I want you to have one of my kidneys. <laughs> and he gave me one of his kidneys. The doctors could put it in, right? But the odds are that without some serious meds, and probably even with some serious meds, my body would immediately start to reject it. Why? Because it's not of me, it's of Greg. It doesn't belong there. And just like that, when we choose to be followers of Christ, we aren't of this world, but we are of Christ. Our, we don't belong here. Our hope isn't found here. So as only a small portion of our life, our eternal life will actually exist here on this earth, for that mist, for that small piece, we should expect rejection. But yet we fear it. I fear it. Um, and I know that I'm not the only one because the National Institute of Health has defined this fear as the fear of rejection, also known as social phobia. Well, so what social phobia is, per the National Institutes of Health website, is it is a strong fear of being judged by others or, being, or of being embarrassed, of being told that you don't belong or that you're different. It goes on to say that this fear actually will, at least 90% of the time, shape the behavior of the person experiencing it. So what they mean is that it causes this fear, this tension, it causes us not to speak out when we know a voice is heard. It causes us to be a Christian on Sundays, but then to kind of slink back into work or into school and just try to blend into the world the other six days of the week. Try to blend into the workplace and blend in at school because I don't want anyone to think that I'm different because they might reject me. Well, Christ says they will reject you. But as I began to think about this, I thought, you know, the fear is real. I'm not saying that it isn't real. I know that it's real. I experience it myself. But perhaps, 
that the fear is what actually makes the divide palpable. It was, the fear is what actually makes us notice the difference between following Christ and the world. It's that uncomfortable feeling that makes the gap visible. Because if we didn't experience some sensation that would tell us where and to whom we belong, then how would we ever know where or to whom we belong? In Matthew 10, 34, Jesus again shows us that it's black and white. He says, he didn't come to bring peace on earth, but to bring a sword. He came to cut his church apart from the world, to make it clear that it was black and white, to make it clear that there was a division between following him and experiencing life and following the world and experiencing death. So to go back to John, he says, you aren't from here, so don't be surprised when here doesn't like you. He's saying, you belong 100% to me, remember? I have chosen you out of it, not partially out of it, not like 51% out of it. I have chosen you all the way out of it. It's not a slow fade to gray. So the tension that you feel in your core, that, that feeling of being rejected or the fear of being rejected, that tension is there because you know to whom you really belong. The reality is that that tension, that fear, that feeling is spiritually discerned. It's the Spirit speaking into you. And you only hear the Spirit because you've accepted Christ, because you are following Christ. It says in 1 Corinthians 2.14 that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. That he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. They're spiritually discerned. The rejection, that feeling of rejection that you get, it tells you whom you belong to. And if you wonder why some people don't experience that fear of rejection or why some people don't see that fear of rejection in certain circumstances, it can be because they don't, they don't hear it. It's, it's evidence as to where they belong also. So this is God calling you to live a life that's actually worthy of your calling, to re- not only reject the world's standards, but to embrace the rejection that they'll give you in return. So when you feel it, It's Christ calling you out. Don't ignore it. Don't cave to it. Don't suppress it because it's proof that you belong to him, so embrace it. And I want to leave this thought with uh, a few more words of Christ out of the book of Luke, chapter 6, 22 through 23. It says, Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day. Leap for joy because great is your reward. Without rejection by the world, there can be no life. Just like without suffering, there can be no eventual life. It's part of the process. It's a painful part, but it's there, and it's real. So lastly, Christ tells us he'll experience death. And since we're having such a good, like, feel-goody sermon, I feel like we should probably dwell on that a little bit also. (laughs) So Jesus says that in... uh, chapter 8, verse 31, that he has to be killed and after three days rise again. And remember that I think this is really what sets Peter off because the idea of dying for victory is just backwards in his mind. But it's the only way that Jesus could show that the death really had no power over him was to die himself and rise. So the death of Jesus is not the end of the story. Actually, it's just the beginning of the story. So after explaining his fate and saying, I'm going to die, he turns to his disciples and he basically tells them, you're going to die also in a couple different ways. A, you're going to have to deny yourself. You're going to have to die to yourself figuratively and also take up your cross, implying you will, this body you're living in will also die. So don't put your hope there. 
So if we look at these two, starting with the figurative death, they're going to have to deny themselves. They're going to have to deny their own will, their own ambition, and, and they're going to have to really follow Christ, right? Without denying themselves, they'll never really see what he fully has in store for them. And just like them, for us, in order to really follow Christ, we're going to have to deny ourselves. I taught a sermon a while back where I had pocket Jesus, and I was actually thinking I should have brought pocket Jesus today, but again, I forgot him. One of these days, he'll actually make it into the sermon when I use him. But pocket Jesus is the Jesus that we put in our pocket, and then we walk around and we say, come on, Jesus, follow me. Because I want to take you where I'm going rather than actually follow you. Rather than actually submit to you and follow you. It's easier for me if you could just tag along. Mm-hmm. Jesus says that's not how it works. You deny yourself. You take up your cross and you follow me. Now in the American church we love the phrase born again. right? I just heard, I just heard it used on some TV show the other day. The lady said, oh I'm a born again Christian. Nicole, Nicole knows what show it is. Ask me later. I probably won't tell you. Uh, so we use this phrase, but the reality is that in order to be born again, we have to die, right? So the born again part is, is good because it means we get to start over. And we know who we are before Christ, and it's not good. And so as we come to the end of ourselves and we die, then we're able to be born again. But it's easier to focus on the born again than it is on the die part, but it's all part of the process, It's a painful and difficult struggle to get the human heart to fully relinquish control to Christ. A daily struggle. That what he promises, for us to understand that what he promises is actually greater than what I myself or the world could accomplish. Right? That just like Denise's bumper sticker says, that he is in fact greater than I. Right? So it's this death, it's this coming to the end of ourselves, to falling under our knees, to recognizing what we are apart from Christ as worthless. It's this, I think, that Christ says when he says, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever wants to lose their life for the sake of the gospel will save it. He's saying, if you're willing to put yourself aside, then I can finally work with that, right? saying give it up. If you cling desperately to this life and to this world, then you'll never really understand the true and lasting life that Christ can bring. But if you would trade him in for you, if you would trade your selfishness in for the gospel, then you could really understand what it means to live. It's easy to say. It's hard to do. To deny my own selfish ambitions because I'm a sinner. And as long as my heart is beating, I'm going to struggle with sin. But I keep struggling. We keep struggling because we've tasted, we've seen something greater. Right? Greater is he living in me than he who is living in the world, that he is indeed greater than I. So when I finally come to that realization, when I say, okay, Christ, you are greater than myself, and apart from you, I am nothing, then what choice do I really have but to die to myself? So the last thing that uh, we got to talk about is the death of this body, right? And that's really the one thing that the world promises us that we, every single person that's born will experience, right? We're all promised from the moment, we're, the moment we live, we're dying in this body. But in politics today, as we're in this election cycle, which is maddening, but a whole different thing. Greg, teach a sermon on that. 
In this politics, in, we hear so much about entitlements and rights, right? What are we, are or are not we entitled to? What do we or do we not have the right to as a basic human right? Well, let me tell you about one entitlement that God gives us regarding our life here on earth in Genesis 3, where due to the sins of Adam, of Adam and Eve, he promises us death. He says, from the dust you were, t- you will, you were taken and to the dust you will return which is pretty gloomy by itself, but thankfully, that's not where the story ends, right? We have the good news of the gospel. So as Carl mentioned last week, we are eternal beings, and this body that we live in, that, that we may be afraid to die in, or we may, it just makes it sort of kind of an uncomfortable prospect, this body is only just a piece of who we are, really, right? It doesn't encompass our soul or our, or our spirit. And because of Christ, because of the spotless lamb led to slaughter, our sins would be forgiven in order that we would have access back to God, that we would actually be able to have relationship with God, and that out of that our souls would be saved and our spirits would be eternal. Now don't get me wrong, it doesn't mean that as humans in our base element that we are owed this life, right? This eternity. We are owed death. Romans 6.23 says... For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. To be paid a wage is to be paid what you are owed for doing something that you have done. So, if we're sinners, then we commit sin. And if the wage of sin is death, then we are owed death. But in place of the wage that we're owed, in place of what we've earned, God chose to give us a gift, a gift that was freely given, and that gift is life. It's the opposite of what we're owed, but it can only be found in one place and through one person, and that's Christ Jesus. Because his suffering and his rejection and his death all led to his victory. And our sharing in that victory is a gift that was given, not something that was owed, not something that was earned. It was given to us by a father that loves with such ferocity Every person that he would choose to sacrifice his own son through suffering, rejection, and death in order that he might gain many more sons through Christ. Many more daughters through Christ. So if in Christ I recognize myself as an eternal being and I approach God in that manner, then just like Carl told us last week, the response will be dictated by the approach. If I clothe myself in the blood of his son and I myself at my core am washed white as snow, then my sins will be forgiven and the approach will dictate the response. Likewise, if I choose to approach the throne apart from Christ, the response will be dictated by the approach. Jesus is the only way to experience real life. So then why must we suffer, be rejected, and die? Well, the clear answer is for life. For real, true, sustainable, beautiful, eternal life. A life that can only be found in Christ. So although we can't avoid the suffering, rejection, and death that we know we're promised, right? That we know that we will experience. We can focus on the promise of life. One of the band members of Ren Collective this weekend, he said that when we look at him, we can actually start to be like him. So when we focus on that victory, it paints a different perspective of the suffering, the rejection, and the death. 
We can approach the throne with an eternal perspective and with the recognition that we ourselves are eternal beings, but only is that possible because of Christ. And the reality is that when we embrace this victory, then the suffering, the rejection, and the death are overshadowed by the victory. The victory changes our perspective of what we might experience here. So much so does it change our perspective that we adorn ourselves in, a, in an instrument of suffering, that we hang it in our homes, that we stick it on our cars, that we tattoo it into our skin. So why would we possibly do that? Why would we remind ourselves of suffering and rejection and death that the cross represents? Why would we use that symbol to define who we are as a Christian church? Like, why would that be the one piece that we define ourselves by? Because the reality is that without the suffering, without the rejection, and without the death that the cross represents, there could be no life. So that brutal device of torture actually is the most beautiful thing on this earth. It's what actually will give us access back to the Father. What will grant us access back to our creator at our core so that he can build our strength, he can confirm us, he can reestablish everything that this world has torn down. Without that symbol, there is none of that. So as I close, I want to meditate on these questions for a little bit. I want to pray about these questions. The first is, will I suffer for the sake of the gospel? Will I choose suffering over the comfort for the sake of the gospel? Will I embrace rejection by the world? Will I embrace rejection? Will I be rejected? And then will I choose to deny myself? Will I die? Let's pray. Father God, this plan of suffering, rejection, and death It doesn't sit well sometimes. It doesn't feel natural. It doesn't... It's hard to get excited about, but God, the life is easy to get excited about. And I long for the day where I experience something more than I could possibly experience in this body, in this world. I long for the day where I can really be made whole in your presence, where I can spend an eternity worshiping you, with all the other brothers and sisters that I have in Christ Jesus. So, Father, if suffering and rejection and death is what it's going to take, then I submit to that. And, Father God, I just... Every time I prepare these messages, every time I do this, it seems like you walk me through what you're preparing me for. Like, as I get ready to teach it, you, you make sure that I can experience some of it. And God, it has been palpable for the last few weeks. And Lord, I just pray, I just pray that every person here would experience that. Not in like a mean way. But God, I just pray that they would experience those, those feelings, those realities that will set them apart from the world, God. That they would know that this is not where they belong. This is not what you created them for. 
that all of the gross, ugly stuff that happens here, all the stuff in the news, all the stuff in our lives, all the ugly emotions that we experience here, we were never created for that. And the suffering and the rejection and the death that we feel because of where we are right now is only preparing us for real and true and sustainable life in you. So God, as we experience these things, as we feel the pain, as we feel the suffering, as we have to choose it, God, we pray that you would just allow your spirit to speak clearly and loudly in our ear to remind us of whose we are, that we should set ourselves apart from this world, not cling to it, not blend into it, God, that we were never made to blend in here, not in the workplace, not in our schools, not in the streets, not in this community. We were never made to blend in, to be camouflaged in this world that does not define us, but rather, God, that that we were intended to be a light that would shine in the darkness, a light that would shine and would be so visible because of the darkness around it, God, that it would change the view, that it would reveal things for the community, for each other, for our coworkers, for our classmates. That, God, we would walk in this community, that we would experience the suffering, the rejection, and the death to ourselves together. And, Father God, this is a hard prayer to pray. I think of Teresa Langberg when I pray this one. But God, give us suffering, rejection, and death, and don't blunt it. Don't make it less sharp. Don't make it less notable. Don't make it less palpable, God. But bring it on. Pile it on. Heap it on. Show us whose we are. And then as we experience that, as we feel that, Lord God, just breathe life into our lungs. Allow us to feel you and your presence, to come to the end of ourselves, to come to the end of what the world could promise or give, and to actually experience your breath breathe straight into us that we could actually live, that we would be rejuvenated and refueled out of that. So, Father God, we boldly approach the throne this morning, clothed in the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, and we ask, we beg to experience more of you. Send your Spirit into this place. Fill us up that we may walk out of here and be changed. That we may walk out of here with a different perspective. That, God, we would not fear any of these things because we know what they deliver. We know what the promise is, and the promise is life. So we focus on that. We look to you, and we hope to be like you. Lord God, you're so good. I thank you for these moments that you've given us to study your word together. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.